Hello, and welcome to Urban Design Room. I'm here with Danny and Lucy, and today we've got an episode on co-housing, which is a bit of a follow-up to our last episode on COVID-19, where we spoke about how the response to that is making us think about um, different ways to live in communities. Um, Lucy has interviewed Stephen Hill, the former chairman of the UK Co-Housing Network. Um, so Lucy, could you give us a brief intro as to what is co-housing and what did you talk about with Stephen? Yeah, I think it's kind of worth a quick, before we get into the interview, a quick sort of co-housing 101 on what it is. In a way, it's sort of a bit of a loose definition and it's still not a particularly well-known form of housing, although there is one development down in Cambridge called Marmalade Lane that people might have heard of over the last few weeks and months because it's picking up prizes left, right and centre for housing developments. So really, co-housing is about the building of an intentional community. So that's one that's created and controlled by its residents, which is why we see it as a form of community-led housing because it's the community that shapes it. And what's really central to it is it shifts the balance um, compared to a normal housing development, so-called normal co-housing development, between public and private and between private and community. So while everyone will have their private space, usually a bit smaller than the average space, there'll also be a lot more public space. So most of them would have a common house where they might eat together occasionally, they might be shared laundry, other kinds of shared facilities. Um, and the key goal is really helping to resolve sort of social isolation problems um, that we have and in some ways trying to recreate the kind of close-knit neighbourhoods of the past. Um, so Stephen is someone that I met a couple of years ago at a conference where I was talking about co-housing. Um, yeah, and he's a long-term advocate of um, people being able to shape their own communities and, and, and why community-led housing should be much more mainstream. So without getting further into the weeds, I think I'll hand over to see what Stephen has to say. So thanks very much for joining us, uh, Stephen, on the podcast. Um, so I guess getting the first sort of mandatory question out of the way of in these strange times of um, how's lockdown treating you? Well, I'm, I'm so slightly guiltily feel um, I'm having quite a nice time when I know lots of people are not having a nice time. Um, uh, it's been an opportunity to do some writing, some thinking, um, doing some manual work in between doing the desk work. Um, uh, which is also an aid to thinking. Um, boring, repetitive tasks are actually quite a good way of generating ideas. Um, so it's it's been quite good. And I, it was a time of the year that I was in any event going to be going away, originally to North Italy, um, not a good choice. Um, uh, and I was going to do a rewrite of my, or a second edition of my Churchill Fellowship report on um, community-led housing. Um, and I haven't actually had any time to do it now that I'm working here at home. So that's a job still to be done at some stage later this year. And helping out with uh, recording podcasts as well. <laughs> so squeezing a lot in. Um, uh, okay. so, <laughs> <laughs> so just kind of kicking off with a few questions. Um, I guess the first one's sort of most basic place to start. So what is it that makes, for people who haven't heard of it before, what is it that makes co-housing co-housing and what distinguishes it from other kinds of, of housing? I mean, this, at one level, this is a very tricky question. At another, it's really simple. Um, so a few years ago, we um, say we, this is the, the National Community Land Trust Network um, rather than the co-housing network, um, worked with a doctoral student who was looking at service design um, and particularly how do people get in touch with or find out about community-led housing um, if they don't know anything about it now. 
Uh, and one of the jobs she did was to go out um, on uh, uh, rush hour stations um, uh, at commuting time in London um, and just ask people, kind of vox pop interviews, what do you want from your housing? Um, and the sort of things that people said was that they wanted to live in a neighbourly place with people they knew, uh, people they could rely on and trust, um, and to be able to use that relationship as a foundation for doing other things in your neighbourhood, um, and, and you know, amongst other things. And um, our doctoral student, when she reported back, she said basically nearly everybody wants all the things that community-led housing CLTs, co-ops and co-housing um, offer, but they've got no idea who you are or where to find you. Um, so at one level, co-housing in particular is, is kind of not unusual, except that it is very unusual. It's really difficult to find those opportunities. Um, and I think it, it's why people are attracted to particular neighbourhoods when they're looking for uh, a new home to rent or to buy. You know, they're trying to go to places where they think some of these things will happen uh, and have a reputation for happening. Um, but clearly not everybody can do that. Um, so there are many people who think, well, if, if that's the way of living I want to experience, then I have to find a way of doing it with other people and we have to build it ourselves. Because the offer we're getting on the, on the standard housing market just doesn't fit that bill, does it? You know, that, that, that's that's correct. Um, and yet, you think frustratingly, it wouldn't take much for any developer, whether they're a housing association or a local authority or a commercial developer, to offer that kind of opportunity. Um, in the in the USA. Um, the commercial sector has been much smarter about this. I mean, there aren't any re equivalents to housing associations or not on any scale. Um, so co-housing groups worked out that if they went to a developer who was about to start a new development, they could effectively do a deal with them to be the site-breaking phase of a new development. And there are all sorts of commercial benefits to the developer for doing that, is that they can build a load of houses all at once at the beginning, rather than have to build one, sell one, build one, sell one. Um, they could build it all at once. They get a community of people moving in all together. Um, they get a lot of money up front. Um, and they get a, a ready-made marketing suite. So when other people come to the site, they see people living a very nice, congenial community lifestyle. Um, and I gather that in some cases, some of the community groups are quite hard-nosed and they've kind of done a kind of a profit share deal with a developer. You know, we're creating value for you. Um, uh, and so you just kind of feel that it, it, it ought to be much easier than it is. Um, and I think there are some interesting cultural things about um, both life in Britain, social life in Britain, and the way we do development in Britain that does make it more difficult than in other places. Um, you know, mainland Europe um, is obviously a place where there is loads of co-housing, hundreds of schemes, um, you know, and yet we're, we're just getting on to our 22nd or 23rd completed scheme this year. Um, so this is one of the things that I was going to kind of ask about, because it was interesting when I spoke to Danny, one of our co-hosts on the podcast, you know, I described co-housing to him. 
and you know his response like a lot of people was well this sounds fantastic you know wh why is everyone not doing this surely everyone would want to live in one of these communities and my response was mm -hmm. a bit like well it's kind of it's it's bloody difficult you know um and i was as you know gonna one of the things i wanted to ask you was you know about what what those barriers are what are the major barriers for instance in the uk and 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 like you're talking about other countries you know are, are there benchmarks um of other the other places set where those places are and sort of what they do differently um i know that's something you were sort of starting to talk about uh, i could talk for another hour on this so i'll have to be really selective because <laughs> it's such a big question and it's absolutely the right question to be asking um right let's kind of kind of pick out a few strands so um, just think about the kind of cultural things about Britain. I think it would be fair to say that a very common response to a group of people who want to do a co-housing scheme in Britain um, from uh, politicians who work in local authorities, um, from their uh, professional officers and from developers is there's kind of something odd about you as a group of people who want to do this. You're kind of weird. Um, and there was a famous occasion when the Spring Hill um, co-housing scheme in Stroud went to planning. Um, that was the response of one of the uh, councillors on the planning committee. Um, uh, these people are weirdy. Um, uh, and um, they couldn't kind of understand why um, uh, doing things together, having a meal together, um, uh, having um, a an environment where your cars are not parked outside your front door, that your kids can go out and play safely in the street or in the path. Um, uh, these were all thought to be rather odd things. Um, and yet you might imagine you kind of ask that, uh, that guy, and he was a guy, um, saying, well, what are the things that you enjoy most doing? Having a meal with your friends. What is so odd about that? Um, so there are kind of some, there are some really odd things which are kind of sort of hard to explain about why they are such a clear cultural barrier, you're odd because you want to live together. And immediately people invoke images of communes and things like that. And then if you kind of jump to the other bit of your question, which was, well, what are the, the kind of norms in other countries? Um, it's really interesting. If you look at um, Sweden and Denmark and Germany and the Netherlands, um, where co-housing is a very strong component of the mainstream housing market, um, if you look at some of the cultural roots of that, um, you might imagine Scandinavian countries, old communes and slightly hippie ways of living are actually part of the course. Actually, the roots of co-housing are absolutely not that. Um, they're often very carefully socially constructed ways of living um, that were, in the case of, of Sweden, were uh, the first kind of co-housing schemes were um, constructed around the needs of uh, working women to be able to, in a sense, kind of share some of the tasks of childcare, making meals and so on, so that they could be effective earners on an equal footing with men. Um, so I think there are some, you know, each, each country will have its own kind of social roots, um, uh, but they're, they're very not kind of um, uh, hippie-ish, eco-living, whatever. Um, although, of course, now lots of co-housing groups are very interested in eco-living and they come together specifically with the idea that they could live more sustainably together. 
than they could on their own. Um, you know, there are things that you can clearly do together which um, have a much greater impact. Um, you know, simple things like carpooling and sharing and things of that kind. Um, you know, bulk energy, uh, bulk purchases of, of food and things of that kind, food growing, um, uh, and kind of just sharing more stuff generally. Um, you know, Coke, uh, Spring Hill, their proud boast was we have one lawnmower where previously we had 35. Um, uh, so this is not good for the manufacturing and retail-based economies that we have um, to cut down on goods. But, it, you know, it's a kind of where we have to go, ultimately. It's sometimes the simple things, isn't it? You know, I remember going to, yeah. um, down in Froome, they have a, a library of things, and it was uh, where you could borrow items rather than books. And I remember it was there yeah, that yeah. I heard that, yeah. you know, a, a, a drill is used for an average of 13 minutes in its lifetime or something. So yes. it doesn't really make sense for everyone to have one in their house. So there's these quite small things that, that make sense about, about those shared yeah. facilities, yeah, even yeah. on a small yeah, scale. And I think I think in, in other countries, so like the Netherlands, I think um, government has seen, uh, saw, saw very early on, some of the health benefits of living in more organised communities. Um, I mean, to the extent that um, their national health services were beginning to rely a little bit too much on neighbours to provide some kind of basic care services for their for their neighbours, um, particularly older people. Um, and I gather there was a bit of a revolt by um, people saying, "No, no, we didn't come into a co-housing scheme in order to change our neighbours' neighbours' incontinence nappies." Um, um, so now they have very carefully constructed protocols about what neighbours uh, can reasonably be expected to do and what the primary care services do um, and I think that's right. Um, I think the real benefits, the kind of real health benefits um, that co-housing can offer are much more to do with mental health, um, avoiding loneliness, um, helping people go on live productive active lives um, uh, with kind of active social content in it. Um, so I think um, and I can't really explain it. There's something about British policy making that doesn't look to the things that community itself could offer for the benefit of itself. Um, uh, and I think it's, it's, a, it's part of the post-war settlement in which the state had to take a really instrumental role in the reconstruction of the country, which was you know, only the state could do most of those things. Um, but it became a culture in which um, self-organisation, self-reliance sort of disappeared from being part of the policy landscape. Um, and um, you know, Beveridge, who was the, the kind of the, the thought leader behind the uh, welfare state, you know, even in 1948-1949 was writing, complaining that um, the civil service in Whitehall, or Whitehall generally, was taking back too responsibility for too many things from the citizen and from civil society. Because um, he saw that the strength of civil society was the basis on which we basically live a much kind of freer, better quality life. Um, and you could say that at this particular moment, um, we've rediscovered that a bit. Um, in that communities are able to do things for each other that, that the state simply has not been able to do. You know, well, that's that's the interesting question and maybe the sort of million dollar question in so many of these discussions is, 
is you know are, are ideas like co-housing and community-led housing you know is this the beginning of potentially their moment in the sun might things change um you know because of all the changes that we're seeing under lockdown you know one thing that just you know yeah. it always really occurs to me that if you look at some of the social changes that are happening around us you know a lot of people they're like a a series of mini experiments in co-living sometimes whether that's a whatsapp group and the mutual yeah. support yeah. groups and is do you think that's a platform on which a kind of different approach to housing and different expectations could actually be built um how optimistic or pessimistic are you about that well i think people will have experienced their capacity to do things with their neighbors in a way that many people will never have done before um so i think hopefully that will be a bit of a revelation um and that people may then be enthused to both sustain that in the longer term and to become more ambitious. Um, I mean, you could, might think that one of the things that um, certainly neighbours around me and the impression you get generally is the fact that the air quality is so much better um, and the environment in our streets with no cars running up and down them all the time is um, a complete delight. Um, so whereas in my neighbourhood, there's one street which becomes a play street um, one weekend in every four. Um, we're kind of beginning to think, well, particularly when we go out on Thursday nights and clap our hands and bash our saucepan lids, um, why don't we find other ways of occupying the street um, and making it a place where we can all meet in a kind of a more casual way? Um, and actually, if you look on Twitter, there's some great pictures going the rounds at the moment of little kind of tiny pocket parks that people are beginning to construct um, and other forms of street life um, if we had to cope with less cars all the time and if we need to accommodate more physically distanced activities um, so you guys think there's a great opportunity yeah i think you know you brought up before didn't you i think some of the images that um are used to kind of sell housing and where and where people want to live you know and i think you yeah. know, I've heard the, the developers behind Cambridge, um, Marmalade Lane in Cambridge talk before about the, the biggest kind of yeah. success of, of something like that is that you've never got an actual situation that um, reflects so much of what the CGI imagery and the Photoshop imagery would do yeah. on the marketing materials. And yeah. you see that, I think, on some of the um, on some of the streets around Manchester. One, one of the um, yeah. a friend of mine noticed on a street in Ermston you know, that actually she looked out and this looked like one of those photoshopped images. There were kids cycling down the street and neighbours chatting <laughs> to each other, potentially at, at two metres distance. Yeah. But, you know, we are starting, yeah. I think it makes it, do you think it makes a difference when people can really experience that in, in real life, yeah. uh, how it could be yeah. different? Yes. Um, just going back to the, the examples I was giving in the States earlier. So there's there was one co-housing development that was the site-breaking phase of a development in North Denver. And North Denver is kind of quite a cool place to live. Um, uh, and it was based around uh, quite traditional forms of um, domestic architecture in the US. So every house would have had a little kind of stoop outside and people sit on that quite naturally. Um, but they were all grouped around a kind of shared space with nice planting in it and a pathway and place for kids to play and so on. Um, uh, and so the developer was happy to build uh, that for them because that's the, the kind of uh, environment they wanted to live in. Um, and uh, but when they and it's a new urbanist developer so that kind of style of housing uh, was going to be throughout the scheme but the physical arrangement the layout the rest of the site was then very conventional 
Um, so streets with uh, um, cars parked in front of your house or on your kind of front parking lot, um, you know, very traditional with none of the kind of richness that you get from that shared space. So the only social space was negotiating the street along with the cars. Um, uh, and apparently, as people began to move in to these um, straightforward market homes, where did they go and congregate? In the shared space in the co-housing scheme. So you kind of think maybe the developer could learn a thing or two <laughs> about um, how people, what are the kind of space, social spaces outdoors that people really like to occupy. Um, and often they're much kind of smaller and more intimate um, and sometimes a bit a bit, a bit messy. Um, they're not the things that would necessarily appear on the urban designer's drawing. And it does, and it does make you wonder, I guess, whether there are sort of co-housing principles that, um, or, or some of the principles around design around spaces that can be learnt from in sort of quote unquote more conventional yeah. developments, um, and whether there's a halfway yeah. house when something's not entirely yeah. community led, but whether developer led housing can learn from this too, perhaps. I think I think that there's one very very good example of that which you might know, which is the. Um, uh, igloos development in Usburn in um, East uh, Newcastle, um, uh, uh, the mailings um, designed by Ash Sackler. Um, and it, it's in a very distinctive form of development of kind of sort of finger blocks that go down the hill towards the Usburn at the bottom. Um, uh, and the spaces between the buildings um, are, I mean, you'd have to say, they're, they're rather messy. Um, uh, the form of housing is um, like Tyneside flats, so uh, they're flats and maisonettes above, but everybody has their own front door down into this kind of shared space. Um, and it's all kind of mixed up. There are little bits of shared space, there are little bits of private space, um, but the whole thing is really kind of intimate and quite compressed within uh, four or five-storey buildings. Um, uh, but the orientation of the sun is great, so they get a lot of sunlight. Um, and it may be that the particular um, sector of the market that they were hoping to capture are the kind of people who might have you know, chosen it, particularly because of Usburn is a kind of quite cool place to live. Um, but there were people from all kinds of backgrounds, um, and they liked this place, the, the sense that they were going to be meeting their neighbours every time they went out their front door. There might be somebody sitting outside, somebody going to another front door. Um, and that has produced lots of informal social interactions, supported by the developer, um, who had a bit of an idea that this could happen. Um, and so there's now really, really active, fun uh, residence association, but kind of with a kind of active social life that isn't just around managing the space. Um, and I think it's a, it's a really clever bit of design, which has exactly that kind of enough of providing the, 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 the space within which these things can happen, but then how people inhabit that space and develop it um, and change it around um, are things that they are doing for themselves. Yeah. And, and picking up on something you just said there, I, you know, I often have a, a question to myself about co-housing, about how it can be more inclusive. So as, as far as I, say, as I, as I see, and, and maybe it's because it's such a, as we were discussing before, it's such a sort of niche sector full of what they, they call as weirdies. Um, 
it's not it's not particularly inclusive at the moment or or, or diverse necessarily and 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 one of the things i was going yeah. to ask is how 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 we can make it more diverse i think you've you've already talked through some of the reasons um before but so that this is an opportunity that's open to everyone because everyone benefits from it in the same way i guess um, i i think it, it's a it's a really good point um and it, it's a, it's a sort of an accusation that is often raised by people who don't want to support the inclusion of a co-housing scheme in a bigger project that i've got one right on my doorstep at this very moment um you know it doesn't meet the most urgent social needs um and i think that is an entirely wrong diagnosis um uh, it does meet all kinds of really important social need. Um, the problem is that um, UK, the UK, unlike both in the US and mainland Europe, has very few financial institutions from whom um, any group, regardless of their income, can go to borrow um, and raise the finance for their project. Um, it's much, much easier in uh, nor other parts of Northern Europe um, there are kind of local banking system, there are building societies, there are local authorities, all of whom are prepared to put finance into uh, these projects. So that makes it much more accessible. Um, the local authorities in many countries are also instrumental in facilitating new developments of which there is an expectation that co-housing will be part. So again, that enables you to have a much wider spread of um, uh, uh, um, kind of er earnings potential so um, it will be accessible to people who uh, need social housing here or people who are owner occupiers so the people who've been able to do it in this country so far have really been been limited to those people with um, existing housing equity in, in the last few years, since the advent of the Community Housing Fund, which was a dedicated resource for support community-led housing schemes, it has meant that it's much easier for co-housing groups to recruit groups in, at an early stage of people who may need um, affordable housing as well as market housing because they know they can access grant to do the affordable bit. So it won't make... Um, co-housing schemes that much quicker in the short term at least but it does mean that there will be increasingly be a kind of pipeline of new co-housing schemes which will have a much broader range of people and people in the kind of co-housing world themselves are really keen that this is a much more inclusive um, uh, choice for people um, you know we had a um, uh, conference um, four years ago or five years ago now 2015 um, uh, and we did a kind of crowdsourced manifesto in the spirit of co-production at the end of our conference and the things that people were saying was we have to find ways of making co-housing accessible to anybody who wants to do it or whatever their income level is um, uh, co-housing network needs to work more with the community land trust network with the cooperative sector um, so that all those different ingredients of a community-led housing, uh, people will want to access different characteristics. Um, so you could have a co-housing scheme with permanently affordable housing in it. The CLT mechanism is a way of doing that. Um, so there, there, there was a kind of real sense of urgency to make this a more universal choice for people. Um, and I think that that's a really important thing to say because... That's not the impression that people who haven't really looked into it 
come to a discussion about co-housing with that in their mind. And you often have to spend quite a lot of time convincing them that this isn't a rather elite, middle-class, um, privileged community. Yeah, absolutely. And um, a lot of those barriers you were mentioning there are, as part of an early stage co-housing group, they all sound incredibly familiar, painfully familiar, I think, in terms yeah. of access to finance. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and access to land is another thing. Um, yeah. And... Uh, so, so I mean, just just finishing up, um, I guess the, the only question, you've mentioned a few of the developments, you've mentioned developments like Marmalade Lane and Lilac and some on the continent, I think. Um, do you have a favourite one? You must have visited a fair few over the years. Do you have one you were particularly impressed with that sticks in your mind? My, my, my favourite um, co-housing scheme is in um, uh, North Oakland in California, in the Bay Area, um, and it's called Mariposa Grove. Um, it's very small. Um, it's I think it, it's coming with its six or eight homes. Um, anyway, it's right at the bottom of the the size range that um, the co-housing network size says schemes are typically between eight and forty homes. Um, I have to say I really dislike that <laughs> um, because actually co-housing schemes can be any size you want them to be. You just have to organise it in a way that suits the numbers. Um, although when you get to bigger level, um, you do you may want to kind of break it down into some more manageable subunits, as they do in Denmark particularly. But the, the, the lovely thing about Mariposa Grove, the kind of story of it was that um, there was a guy called Hank um, who had uh, who's German, had lived in Berlin. Um, uh, he'd lived in kind of student uh, squatter co-ops and things of that kind. Um, uh, he came to live in the US. He was left a little bit of money by his aunt. Um, and so he thought, what could I do to try and recreate what I've enjoyed living in in Berlin? Um, so he bought a, an old rooming house in a not very um, attractive part of North Oakland, um, a rather run-down property. Uh, he then uh, managed to buy um, a disassembled house that had been taken down um, in order to make way for a road. And he basically went and bought the bits of wood that were kind of salvaged from some kind of builder's yard somewhere. Um, and so there's this little kind of um, kind of perfectly formed two, two houses with a, with a street frontage and then this reassembled house in the in the backyard and bits of open space and it's all a bit messy um, most of the people who live there at the moment are in some kind of creative um, work um, so they were desperate to be able to have somewhere that was affordable where they didn't have to be kind of earning every single minute of the day um, that allowed them a bit of flexibility to both both practice paint or whatever um, but um, again, it sounds a little bit elitist, but in fact, they become a really important part of that community. Um, so their common, their common house has become a place where kids can come and um, learn music on the piano. Um, it's California, so the climate is wonderful. So you can do lots of things in the backyard, in the open air. Um, uh, one of the... Um, uh, residents is a photographer so she runs photography classes for kids they started up a food co-op so being able to um, purchase uh, food in bulk and then retail it around the neighborhood again initially not a very prosperous neighborhood 
They've set up a, um, a biking campaign to stop people using their cars. So all sorts of kind of things have begun to happen around that. Um, and then what they then noticed was that partly because of the fact that they were there and also because there were gentrification pressures with people being displaced from um, San Francisco, even quite well-off people. Um, the, ne the, the, the value of the neighbourhood was going up. Um, and in order to preserve what they had created, they voluntarily put themselves into a community land trust at quite a lot of personal expense so that the benefits of their lifestyle would be available to the people who would come after them. So it's a kind of it's a it's an amazing little story, um, and it's a really beautiful place. I mean, I only spent a few hours there, um, but it's just something that kind of sticks in your mind forever, and you think, what lovely way to live, um, uh, with a very light footprint on the earth, um, with um, people who become your very good friends. Um, feels like a lovely thing to do. I'm adding it as a destination to my grand co-housing tour as, as soon as as soon as we're let out yeah, yeah, yeah it sounds yeah. really wonderful um and i think a really good place to start yeah. is going looking at some of these places because to get a sense of um of you know how they work sometimes visiting them is a really a really good place Absolutely. to start right well Stephen, thanks very much we'll finish it up there but um yeah. thanks so much for joining us that was that was really fascinating okay. thanks thanks a lot okay it's been it's been a real pleasure okay bye for now that was a really fascinating interview, um, Lucy, and thank you, Stephen, for being on the podcast. Um, Lucy, just something I'd like to ask you that came out of that. So you're part of Manchester's co-housing group, a group that's trying to get co-housing going here in Greater Manchester. You spoke at the start of the interview about how people who are doing co-housing and co-housing groups often seen as strange or unusual. Did you ever have that sense when you first heard of co-housing or were you already sort of philosophically in the right place and think I'm really understanding what's going on here where you sort of think ah, okay I get this I understand what's great about this it's not so strange yeah it was really interesting to hear Stephen's little anecdote about the uh, Stroud co-housing group um so yeah like you say I've got some sort of skin in the game on this because uh, there's actually a few co-housing groups sort of floating around Greater Manchester but we're part of one Manchester co-housing that we're trying to build an intergenerational community but yeah so I'm one of the one of the weirdies I guess and what is interesting as um, you know our group is is quite a sort of conventional set of people who kind of like Stephen said we just want quite straightforward things so we want community we want um, high quality uh, kind of low impact housing quite a few people with kids want somewhere for their kids to grow up and and run around they're not kind of particularly eccentric things so I thought it was interesting to hear him say that but I do remember that I, I had a few of the co-housing group round at my family's house and um, I do I do distinctly remember that I think my parents were quite surprised that they were really quite normal straightforward people because I think perhaps in their heads they were expecting something a bit weirder and, and more eccentric because of preconceptions they might have had but but for me I think it's um, yeah I think I think they're quite understandable sort of desires for how people might want to live I think as Stephen also talked about, the barriers in place mean that you have to really commit and spend a lot of time and a lot of thought to get these things going. So you tend to get, I guess you, you tend to get sort of activist types doing it as well. So, you know, one of the members of our group is already like passive house architect. So people have quite a strong sense of environmental conscience, that kind of thing. But yeah, not so much weirdies. Um, 
I'm interested to hear how you both kind of perceive, if you have a perception of co-housing as people who are not members of groups and maybe are not got it in their headspace quite so much. What, what did you expect of it? And did what Stephen talk about surprise you in any way? Um, what's your take on it? My only thought or sort of image conjured up when I heard co-housing to beginning is probably like a 1970s Swedish commune with <laughs> yeah. like knitted jumpers and I don't know arguments around a dinner table about whether or not doing the dishes is bourgeois or something like that. <laughs> I don't know um for me yeah you I think it's it's um a learning process of probably hearing about it being confused because you just for me co-housing I think about just people I don't know, living together I'd think more about like a, a council house or something like that along those terms and then you hear a little bit more about it and it's like okay that Swedish hippie commune from 1970s and then finally you come through to a point of clarity you go well all of the points that are raised and the arguments that are made actually are just very normal things that people would like to live in communities like that that's sort of like the dream isn't it where you can be close with your neighbors from my point of view how many how many times do you hear people say oh in the past you could just leave your door unlocked you can't do that anymore so that that's my sort of initial sort of journey through learning about co-housing I feel a lot more comfortable with the idea and uh, interested in it I mean I think what's interesting is the closest cultural reference a lot of us have is communes right so this and, and that is where the, sh- the balance is shifted further towards the public right there's 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 much less of an of, um, emphasis on privacy isn't it and, and I thought it's quite interesting uh, as well to hear what Stephen was saying about about privacy in public space because because you know the reality is you do need your private space I think your relationships with your neighbors are so important but not because they're your best mates that you want to live on top of all the time you don't even have to invite them in they're quite I always think of them like those thinner roots of a tree you know where the trunk is like in in your like social network is is those core relationships of family and really close friends and your neighbors don't necessarily have to be part of that actually it's more those kind of like that root network and I feel like that's what neighbors are for and I think that's what happens in a co-housing community they might not be best mates you know but but they 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 manage this space with each other they tolerate each other I'm sure there's conflict and but that's how neighbors should be really some of them might be good mates but some of them might just be people who are around who support you when you need it um, and I feel like that's what that balance can get right at its best it sounds like sometimes I were discussing a physical thing like housing but actually it's really about community and how people want to live together it really struck me that you know by joining in into or choosing to be part of these sort of communities that you're creating these really important connections which you know we've just been discussing there which particularly made me think of this um so there's this documentary about salford fc being taken over by some old manchester united players the football club in the last few years have become much more successful but it's also become much more commercial and in the first series they're looking they're talking to these people who've been part of this lower league amateur football club and they clearly love being part of it, this responsibility to go and paint the lines on the football pitch. To the level where I remember thinking, or I don't know if they said so explicitly, they don't actually care so much about the football itself. But it's about having this responsibility. They've chosen to be part of this small group of like 10 people who keep this football club going just, you know, from their own um, volunteering. And it sort of reminded me of co-housing in a sense, listening to the interview with Stephen there in terms of people are choosing to have these responsibilities it may not sound like something you would actively choose normally, but those responsibilities bring them a lot of joy and a lot of deep well-being because they have these connections with the other people there. 
And I guess, I suppose within that anecdote, then what the, the big commercial clubs like Manchester United, they'd be like the volume house builders, you know, everything's sort of taken care of you. It's quite expensive. <laughs> everything's taken care of you, yeah. but you know, you just do your own thing. You take someone on a corporate package to Manchester United, but that's the extent of your commitment. Maybe, you know, there is the sort of analogy yeah. in there. I think. You don't have any responsibility as part of it, I suppose. Um, mm. And and just something else that I thought was really exciting, perhaps getting back into I don't know, hardcore urban design in terms of talking about street design or something like that was um, what Stephen mentioned about that development in America where part of it was co-housing and they had that better design of the street to so a bit more of a shared space, a bit less focused around cars. That turned out to be the place where all the people who are in the conventional large house building development with their driveways in front of the houses for cars and um, the more usual space, car-orientated streets. So they were going to hang out on the streets around the co-housing development as part of their area because the street design there was much more conducive to people coming together, children playing, people just feeling comfortable chatting with their neighbours on the street. And so although it isn't necessarily part of a co-housing scheme, the fact that those good street design elements are being brought forward there is, is really great yeah. why are these design principles limited to co-housing there's nothing about co-housing that means you need a pedestrian car free space in the center because they tend to be designed with pedestrian space in the center where kids can play and the, and the cars around the edge but there's no reason that should be limited to co-housing it's not sort of part of the definition you know that every development should be looking at those options really and if every, if every, if every development was actually answering communities' needs perhaps it would because like i say this is what people want apparently I think it's something that sort of slightly confused me about this, actually. And I don't know if it's particularly to the area that I grew up in. All these things about neighbours talking to each other, having communal space in the middle uh, where children can play. My terrace housing, I think, was, was built around the 1930s. And then at the end of the street then was a sort of a green or, I don't know, field where I used to go and play football with the other kids on the neighbourhood. And I'd come back home for my tea and my mum would be talking to someone like the neighbour across the fence, the next terrace house. So what was a little bit confusing to me was that these these values and these ideas of ways of living was just so inherent to the way that in the area that I grew up, I didn't, you know, there's no drive or anything like that. People, cars would park on the street and that would, you know, obviously there's big politics there about someone getting your parking spot. But apart from that, I kind of grew up in basically not a co-housing, there wasn't a communal um, dining room or a building in the middle where you go and have dinner. But apart from that, a lot of the things about, particularly around children, I realised it made me reflect on quite nice to come from an area like mine, which wasn't too suburban, wasn't too much centred around a front and back garden and a driveway and areas sort of perceived, you know, more middle class areas. I think mine was a little bit lower than that. So, yeah, that was kind of confusing to me that the, those things really, it's probably just sort of a desire to counter suburban isolation through those kind of designs and, and whether or not suburbia can just be designed better um, and, and taking a lot of these ideas from co-housing and, and getting that to be a little bit more mainstream just for, for people who don't want to take part in a specific co-housing scheme. Yeah, I think, I mean, potentially that kind of community that you grew up in was like an accidental community instead of an intentional community, like mm -hmm. a lot were, you know, I think back to, you know, where my husband's from Azerbaijan, right? So a lot of villages around there, it's, it's, it's very much sort of co-housing ideas. Yeah, there's no shared communal space, but it's very much that idea of it takes a village to raise a whole village to raise a child, which is very key to the sort of co-housing, particularly for families. But there are accidental communities, whereas this is trying to make that intentional because accidental communities seem to have just failed. And I agree, there's a lot, I think, that can be learned from some of these developments, 
you know, for, from private developers and how they can deliver things in a different way. I think the, the one thing about co-housing structures is that sense of control you have over shaping your own community. Because even if you have a really good developer, and there are some good developers out there, you know, who develop really nice spaces, you're probably still then going to have that space handed over to a management company. You're probably not really going to have co-designed it and been like, oh, we, I think we want some growing space there. So you do have less control, but a lot of people might be willing to trade a le- less control for less hassle as well and just live in a well-designed development, which absolutely yeah, should be an option. The other thing that I thought that I thought I really got out of that interview was was this question of diversity and inclusivity in co-housing and I think um, that's a a question I really wanted to ask it's the one thing that sort of bothers me a little bit about co-housing as it stands at the moment in the UK is that at the moment it's not very diverse and very inclusive and and within our like our co-housing group I think it's really at the forefront of our minds to try and make something that's a more that's that's available to a to a broader range of people than there are in some other communities. I don't know if you guys have if you two have any thoughts. I, I agree. I agree with what you were saying about how it is, and it does seem to be very middle class or very particular maybe people who have the skill sets that can help them make this happen in their own spare time. Um, and Stephen but- sort of pushed back against that, didn't he? I think in the interview, and that's and I understand that because what I sort of drew from from that was that yeah, as it stands. In the UK, these are not particularly affordable options. If you look at Marmalade Lane, it's a fabulous development. Its ownership is actually quite conventional, as I understand. It's mainly privately owned spaces, and obviously they're pulled together in some way to run the common space. But they're pretty, as, as far as I know, they're pretty expensive developments. Um, and I think that's not through potentially any objective of their own. It's more just some of the barriers to financing and that sort of thing that, that Stephen mentioned. But it, it did also make me think that the reality is that it's not necessarily co-housing that's very uninclusive and not very diverse and not very affordable. It's any high quality housing in the UK is not really very affordable and attainable, not just co-housing, because they tend to be very high quality developments, don't they? But try and find a really high quality, affordable development. There are a few some of the council housing developments that have been done, but it's generally nowhere is that affordable. All, all models of high quality housing are quite elitist in the UK, I would suggest. I don't know, for me, my, my, my only other comment was that, yeah, it's, it's a lot of effort as well, isn't it? Mm. You, know, you know, you need to have that sort of, you need to know it exists, what the definition of it is, and then have a complete motivation and intent at the minute. And that was, you know, that was, you know, the, the financial hurdles, the time, and and then you know as we referenced right at the start overcoming <laughs> then once you've done that overcoming sort of cultural norms councils viewing you as being weirdies <laughs> mm. you know all those aspects you know there needs to be a, a real dedication there for you to actually go and make this happen over a long stretch of time so you know if, if this the, the question is this not something that can be more readily sort of available advertised in some way or just communicated to for instance in in the past kind of couple of years, how many people knew about those ISAs that you could save up and go and buy a house with, the savings accounts? Everyone I knew were talking about that. Why isn't co-housing another option, another sort of government, government sort of centre communicated option? I think that's, you yeah, know, that's yeah. the first step, yeah. is getting it in the conversation. 
And the fact that we know that council housing exists, you know that you can go and buy your own house with a with an ISA that you get from Halifax or whatever. Where else is the other options? Where's the alternative options being communicated uh, by councils, government? There are a couple of things happening because kind of in terms of government support, it's a bit unclear what they think. And there are some sort of regional hubs being set up by uh, community-led homes. So there's one just setting up in Greater Manchester. So we've now got Greater Manchester community-led homes who are a source of like support for the local groups. And they've been quite helpful with us quite early stages. But hopefully that'll build a bit and it, and it might help it to become a bit more mainstream. But I think some of the systematic obstacles are in the way, getting your hands on land, you know some encouraging conversations with certain councils because essentially because the land private land market is so expensive in the UK you're basically reliant on either finding the holy grail of some philanthropic landowner who really wants their land to be used by a co-housing group at their expense because they could sell it for more to Barrett or you want local authority land much of which has been sold off so it so it is tricky and you need a really I think on board local authority there's a few in Man- Greater Manchester sort of making the right noises but We'll see whether that comes to them offering up nice bits of land. Okay, so Lucy, just to finish off, could you perhaps give a succinct sort of bit of advice, one piece of advice for anyone who might be listening and thinking, I really love this idea of co-housing, but what's the first step I should take? If we weren't in lockdown, my first piece of advice would probably be to go and visit one of these developments because they often have open days. You could just turn up, although I guess I wouldn't recommend it. They probably probably wouldn't go down too well. But places like Lilac in Leeds, the Lancaster Co-Housing Group, I think Stroud, I think Spring Hill down in Stroud, you can go and visit them. So that might be an option after lockdown because there's nothing quite like seeing it in the flesh. In the absence of that, we're running a webinar, Manchester Co-Housing, um, in a couple of weeks. But another, some other groups might be doing some similar things. The UK Co-Housing Network is also a really good resource and community-led homes. Yeah, another, another person who's, I think, who I find is particularly insightful on this is there's a guy called Paul Chatterton, who uh, was one of the founders of like, the Lilac Co-Housing Development in Leeds. And I believe he's um, also involved academically in his research in issues around housing. I think uh, he would be a good place to start as well. I think look for him on Twitter and look for some of the videos that he's got up online as well. Okay, great. Thanks. So that was a really great episode. Thanks for putting that together, Lucy. And um, thanks for Stephen for being on the podcast. So until next time, um, thanks for listening and um, see you next time.